0: As we bow together in prayer, I just want to share a couple of things with you uh, this morning. I know that it's kind of difficult sometimes to say in a church this size what we're going to pray for publicly and what we're not. And I know there's so many people out. uh, They're sick. I know that we have one, Lisa Miles, uh, in the hospital fighting for her life right now, hospice. And then um, also a good friend of mine and probably a good friend of yours, Jim Henry, who is the pastor of First Baptist Church of Orlando for many, many years. Uh, lost his wife this past week Jeanette and she'd been suffering through Alzheimer's for several years and the same week Jim lost his 100 year old mother as well and so one weekend he's spending in Tennessee with his mom's uh, memorial service and then next weekend he's here in Jeanette so be praying for him but one thing that um, has really moved me this morning to pray is uh, we have a a deacon in our church and he and his wife Gary and Zianna Erickson I've not asked permission to do this, but I just feel like we need to pray for them. They're grandparents of a newborn, Camellia, and um, she was born with a heart defect, and uh, her heart's not going to last very long, and she needs a heart transplant. And so, you know, you can't get any more serious than that. If you're a parent or grandparent here, you know your heart really goes out to them. And so, we want to bow in prayer right now and pray for these right now. God, we thank you, Lord, so much for all that you've given us, and we're sometimes not grateful enough to wear about our own health and the blessings of life that you give us. But, God, I, I just pray for Lisa right now that you'd comfort her and her family. I pray for the same for Jim Henry. And then, Lord, my heart goes out to Camelia, I pray that you would give her strength right now um, in her heart. And, Lord, somehow, you know, if you could mend it without even having a heart transplant... That would be our greatest prayer. But God, if not, if you could just supply a donor for her this week um, before it's too late. I pray for the family, for Gary, for Ziana, for um, um, all the family as well. And God, I pray that you would comfort them and give them strength and draw yourself close to them during this time. And God, we pray that you would speak to our heart now through the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's be seated. Hey, are you ready to hear from the Word of God this morning? Yes. All right. Ten of you. All right. How many of you would? Oh, you were kind of surprised by that. How many of you are ready to hear from the Word of God this morning? Hear from God. Good, good. That's, that's much better, much better. Um, you know, as we open to Matthew chapter 7, this is the last installment, last sermon, on uh, we're going to be having on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, we've talked about it, and we've said that really what's happened here uh, is that Matthew was beginning his gospel by saying, look, Jesus was the Messiah. Uh, He was the Christ. He was the Savior of the world. It says that in, I think it was uh, Matthew 121. But the typical Jewish person coming from the Old Testament type of thinking was thinking, hey, why do I need a Savior? What I'm really looking for is a military conqueror. I don't think I need a Savior because I'm from Abraham. I'm from the Jewish nation. And so he spent the chapters 5, 6, and 7 talking about the fact that we all, including the Jewish population, needed a Savior. We talked about the person in the audience that was thinking to himself, wow, I, I hear all these miracles that Jesus is doing, and we're going to be talking about that more next week where we get to actions. You know, he's, he's talking this morning about the fact that you need a Savior, and next week he's going to be talking about beginning how he is the Savior, and he's going to prove that. But as we're opening up this passage, he's drawing the, the whole sermon on the Mount to a conclusion. And it's amazing to me, at the conclusion of this, in verses 28 and 29, it says, When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching as those, those who, won, who had authority, and not as the scribes. So what kind of authority here are we talking about? I remember back being a student at Cold Falls College. I'd gone from the University of Georgia... To total freedom, I mean, you're talking about total, living living on campus. Hey, you know, if I wanted to go to Dunkin' Donuts at one o'clock in the morning, I just got up and went. But now I'm on a Christian campus with all these curfews and all these rules. I'm just not used to. Man, I'm an adult. I'm an adult, you know. And I'm and so the dean and I became kind of close. <laughs> and then one dean E B. When I was in his office one day, I don't I have no idea what I don't remember what it was for this time. Uh, this time. <laughs> but I was there, and I was kind of bantering with him a little. I was kind of arguing with him. I knew him real well by now. And, uh, and so we were kind of going back and forth, and he asked me a question. I have no idea what context it was in, but he asked me a question. He said, Duane, you just got to decide what kind of person you want to be. I mean, you take the gospel and ministry very seriously, but you need to take life a little bit more seriously. And when he said that, I went, I had nothing to say. No argument at all. And I made a decision that day. And you say, that's a small decision. In fact, I became so serious, I probably swung back a little bit too far the other way. But I made a decision in my life, even though it was small, and God is always, always calling us to make choices in life. You look way back in Joshua. At the end of that book, Joshua said, as for me and my house... We're going to serve the Lord. In Deuteronomy, it says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and, and curse. Therefore, choose life. Jesus was, man, he was talking about some hard stuff, hard sayings. In fact, this is one of them here in this passage. But as he was doing that, he said, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and you have come, we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Again, God calling someone to a decision, a choice. And so at the end of this message, as in many of the messages i preach, I'm going to call you to a decision, a choice. And some of you is going to be very light, little decisions in your life, but nevertheless an important one. To others, it's going to be maybe the choice to follow Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, the way he was calling these to do the same. And so as we look at this passage and we look at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, this whole passage is talking about two gates, two, two foundations, two trees, two kingdoms. There's a contrast here. And there's only two. Because you'll find in your life that when you come to the place of decision, it's not a lot. Of, there's usually not a lot of alternatives. Not only important decisions, it's usually just two. The right one and the wrong one. The God's will and not God's will. And sometimes it's hard to discern between those two. So let's look and understand the road less traveled is the road we need to take. Why? Well, let's look first of all at the choice that God's asking us to make. Jesus is closing down the Sermon on the Mount. In verse 13, he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So he's calling and saying to, to the people there in the Sermon on the Mount, he's calling us today. He says, I want you to take the, the narrow road, the, the road less traveled. He said, broad is the way that's easy. And you can get the idea that it's a wide road, and the crowd The many are following down the road. In fact, it's easy to go because you're just following the crowd. It looks easy. You can kind of run your own life, do your own thing. But we know that because we don't have the wisdom to really lead our life, and we don't have the wisdom to really call all the shots of our life, we don't have any knowledge of the future, we get down and it's a road to destruction. There's dead ends. There's no place to go. It's the road to addiction. It's the road to broken relationships. It's the road to broken lives and brokenness in our own life. The narrow way is more described like a revolving door. You go through the revolving door one at a time, and then you can't even take your baggage. You ever tried to go through there with a lot of luggage? You can't get through. It's like going to the airport, and you're going through um, one of those uh, metal detectors. You go through how many at a time? Just one. It's narrow. And then you have to put all your baggage on. And what a pain that is. But I don't want to get into that. But anyway, that that is. that's That's a pain to do. And so we're talking about the difference between, he says, a broad way that leads to destruction and a narrow way that leads to life. Now, I know our culture does not like the narrow way. We don't like things to be narrow. We like a lot of choices in life. But he's comparing here two different religions. It is not just the religion of Judaism. It's a religion of all religions. And you say, well, you know, there's a Pastor, there's a lot of religions in the world. There's a lot of writings in the world. And really, there are multitudes of religions. And most of them, however, have been started, at least the successful ones today, have been started since Christianity. And so all, almost all, all the way, I mean, right off the bat, I'm looking and I'm thinking, okay, were these real religions or were they alternatives to another way besides Christianity besides Jesus Christ. But we look at the rest of religions of the world and there are really only two. There's a religion of works and there's a religion of grace. There's religion of the flesh, meaning I need to save myself and in saving myself, I'm not really beholden to God to obey any kind of rules or laws or anything like that. And there's one of faith. There's one that says it's do, do, do. I've, I've got to do something to please God. And then there's the other one It talks about just the word done. That is, everything that needs to be done for you to be saved has already been done. Now, how many religions are in the first one? That is the religion of works. It's all of them, but one. The only religion of grace that's presented to us in the world in the last 2,000 years, and really in all of history, is Christianity, of Jesus Christ coming and dying on the cross for our sins. And so there are two religions here. The one, it says you've got to work, and the other one, it says there's grace. Now, the one question that interviewers like to really trap preachers on on television is that whole thing about Jesus Christ being the only way to heaven. I mean, after all, how narrow can you get? We don't like narrow stuff. But here, you know, the same passage that Jesus talks about, that, that funeral passage. You know which one I'm talking about. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. What a promise of heaven. Well, Thomas then comes back and says, one of the disciples, he says, well, Jesus, now wait a minute, we don't have any idea where you're going. And we don't know the way. And Jesus said in John 14:6, right after that, he says, I am the way. The truth And the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, how narrow can you get? That's pretty narrow. See, we have the concept that there's many doors to heaven, many many ways to get there, and the Bible presents it, there is no way to heaven because our sins have cut us off from God. Our sins have separated us from God. So there is no door, but Jesus made a door. He said, now, wait a minute. I have problems with this passage because look at all the people that are so sincere. They've been willing to give their life for their religion. In fact, they've, they've even cost other people's lives because of their dedication to their religion. Well, they're sincere. They're, they're very sincere, and sincerity's good. I was uh, My wife has been driving this black Jeep for the last six years. It's pristine. It's not anymore because I've been driving it for a couple of weeks, but it was really nice, looked new. And so she's been driving it for six years, and I finally get a chance to start driving it. And I know, my cool factor just went up just a little bit, you know. And it can only go up a little bit because I have a, a very low ceiling there. But, um, I mean, I, I don't dress like Tim Dix, but I'm doing what I can. You know, that's all I'm saying. And so, um, so anyway, I'm coming out of CVS. Now, the reason I, I say that, i do not trying to advertise anything, but it has something to do with the story because I'm coming out, I'm wrestling with that, that, that receipt that they give you <laughs> and how long it is. I mean, mine was as long as the, the roll of toilet paper, you know, coming out. Well, bathroom, I'm sorry, bathroom tissue, all right? And I'm stuffing it in this plastic bag, which is extremely awkward. I've got the keys in my hand. I've got the fob. Now, just keep in mind, my wife's driven this car for six years, and we've had no trouble with it at all, none whatsoever. So now I'm driving it. I'm walking into the parking lot, I'm doing the, the fob thing, I get to the car, and I don't hear any clicking. And so I, I try to I put the key in this hand, I've got the bag, and I'm trying to, and I, I'm, I'm jostling with the, with the handle on the door, and it won't open. So I try it again, nothing. Try it again, nothing. I'm, I'm, by this time, I'm kind of shaking on it. I'm thinking, man, I got to call AAA or something now. Suddenly, a window rolls down. And this lady, halfway eating her hamburger, says to me, She said, I think you got the wrong Jeep, but yours, look, look, yours looks right, real nice too. And so, sure enough, I walk around her Jeep and I find mine a couple of parking places down. <laughs> Don't you tell me that's never happened to you. If you drive a white sedan, you have no idea where you've parked this morning. They're everywhere. So, anyway, I was sincere. I was very that lady she were here this morning could tell you yet, yeah, he was sincere. He was trying to get in that car. but I was sincerely wrong. Now, how many of you believe that God this is the best illustration I can give you, okay? It's, it's the best one I've ever come up with on this. And so uh, how many of you believe that, that God loves God is love. God loves people, right? All right. All right? How many of you believe God loves his son, Jesus Christ? Good. All right. Here's a story. You're a parent. You have a five-year-old son. And there's a plague going all throughout the world. And it's just growing. And there's no cure for it. There's a company that comes by your house, very official, government, all that. And they say, look, we are looking for someone with pure blood, that they're immune to this plague, but also has a special kind of DNA in their blood. And we've searched the world, and if we could just have this blood, we can make a cure for all the plague and save all the world. So that's great, that's great. He said, now here's the problem. It's your son, and he's the only one that meets this criteria. And she, he says, wow, you say, I'm, I'm honored. How much blood do you need? And they say, all of it. Not so honored. So now wait a minute. You're telling me I've got to kill my son, give you my son so you can kill him in order to save the rest of the world. That's right. And there's no other way. Are you sure there's no other? No, there's no other way. None. And you think, well, I don't have to talk this over my wife and tears begin to come down your face. You just can't imagine having to do this. The next day, these officials come back and they bring a couple more people. And you're saying, Are you sure? Are you sure there's no other way? And you look at a guy and you say, Now, wait a minute, there's something you're not telling me. I can tell. And the guy feels guilty and he says, Okay, there are a couple of other ways. There's a plant in Africa and they believe that they're already producing some serum and that's going to cure the people beginning in Africa. And in Switzerland has come, the scientists there have come up with something that's a cure and it'll help there too. But if you give your son's blood, we're going to have the best cure. In fact, we're going to have the American cure, and we can get out. I think we can get out of this faster than anybody else, and we'll be better than anybody else. And you think you need to say, now, wait a minute. You want me to sacrifice my son so your pharmaceutical company can have a way, really of making money, but a way, an American way of doing this? Is that what you're telling me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't you want to do that? And you look, and you say, how barbaric do you think I am? Get out of my house. Would you not say that? I think you would. Now, why do you think God is more barbaric than you? If there had been any other way to heaven, why in the world would Jesus come and die on a Roman cross and suffer there for six hours on the cross, much less 33 and a half years of being out of heaven, die on a cross, be resurrected on the third day, go go through all this and all the Bible is written, and the book of Revelation, and all the fulfillments going to come in the future, all this to have another way to heaven, to have the American way, to have the Baptist way, to have the Methodist way, to have the Catholic way. And, and, And don't forget the Presbyterians. No, nobody would do that. If there'd have been any other way to heaven, any other way to God, God would have taken that way. But the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Someone has to pay for that sin. And Jesus Christ was willing to do it for you and for me. And so we look at this, and this is the narrow way. This is narrow. This this, this looks so. and, And by the way, you can say to me today, Pastor, I just believe there's truth in all of it, and all of them are true. What you're saying, do you realize what you're saying? What you're saying is no religion is true. Because all the religions, you take Islam, Christianity, uh, Judaism, Buddhism, which is really a philosophy, you take Mormonism, you take the Jehovah's Witnesses, all of them believe something different. And all of them are basically, including, by the way, the Hindu faith, are really exclusive to any other religion. And so what you're saying is, even though your religion is diametrically opposed to this religion, both of you are right. What you're really saying is, both of you are wrong. Both of you have a religion that really doesn't exist, and the only reason you have it is to make yourself feel better about life and have more of a peaceful life. And if that's what you want, you go ahead and have your Christianity. You go ahead and have your Islam. You go ahead and have your, uh, your, your um, uh, uh, Hinduism. You go ahead and have all those things because religion religion's just something to make you feel better. It's not really true because none of the religions, logically speaking, have to be true, logically speaking. But logically speaking, they all can't be true. One could be, but not any more than one because of what they simply believe. You say, well, Pastor, religion has divided our world. No question about that been one of the biggest dividers in all of the world how can you how can you advocate for religion that divides the world listen it's not that christianity is dividing the world it's the false religions the ones that have an alternative a works works why because sin divides the world you look at our look at our relationships you know we we are gathered toward the broad way uh, running our own life and doing our own thing but as we're going down that broad way We understand that we're really leading our own life, and a lot of that has to do with sin. Listen, what what divides our marriages and our relationships? Anger? It's a sin. Malice? Sin. Envy? Sin. We can just go down the list. What divides our country today? Abortion. It's a sin. It's a sin Jesus died for, but it is. And so that's the greatest divider. All this other stuff is kind of fluff. That's been going on since the 1970s and early, especially the 1980s. So sin divides us. So obviously, a false religion is going to divide you. And if you're here today struggling with that, here's the problem. We take our Bible, and at first we think, well, okay, here's the Bible. Uh, I take it as the Word of God, I take it as literally true, uh, easiest interpretation. In fact, I interpret the Bible. I can tell you, I, I would interpret the Bible the same way. I interpret every other piece of literature in the world. All all have kind of the same rules of interpretation. So you come along, somebody comes along and says, well, culture believes this. Culture believes that it's it's intolerant. Now listen, I believe in tolerance politically. I believe in tolerance as far as relationships go. I believe in tolerance as far as you can believe anything that you uh, desire to believe because that's, we live in a free country, and even the Bible teaches that you, you can believe any way you want to believe. You're free to do that, but I'm also free to discern the truth. Now, you go out into the culture, and they say, well, I don't, we don't really feel like that's a sin anymore. So you take it to the Bible, and you say, well, it, it says it's a sin. Well, we don't feel like it is. And over a period of time, we start looking and say, well, maybe the Greek original language says this. The Greek says this. The Hebrew said The Aramaic. And you got to understand the customs. And you go through. And we change what we believe in the Bible. Now, think about what's happening. And this has been going on for centuries. We take an ever-changing culture by a, by a group of people that really do not have the wisdom of God, They don't have the Holy Spirit living within them as a believer. And they're forming cultural views. And, okay, that's fine. They can do that. But then we take those cultural views because we want to fit in. Then we change the Word of God. And so culture now begins to influence our um, interpretation of the Word of God. Then. Brings me to my next point, and that's simply this. There's a warning here. There's a warning. Beginning of verse 15, the rest of the things really modify. The rest of this passage kind of modifies 13 and 14. There's a broad way. There's a narrow way. Now, here's the thing. You're thinking, well, you know, that's not fair. You know, there's a person born in a certain country that has a different religion, and it's not our religion. I understand that's unfair, and, and there's an explanation to you, and that's, there's an explanation to that. But once you receive Christ into your life and the Holy Spirit lives within you, he will guide you to that truth. However, I want you to look at the flip side with it for just a moment before we get to verse 15. And that is this. It looks like it's maybe unfair to the rest of the world, but look at your privilege. Can you praise God for that? Can you thank God that you are born in one of the countries where you can hear the gospel on, any, on a lot of radio stations, television, The internet anytime you want. You can go to church every Sunday if you so choose. And you're not trying to hide in some uh, basement or some barn somewhere trying to uh, open up a Bible and pray. You're not waiting for a missionary to come and tell you the truth. You get it every, you can get it every single day. What a privilege. Isn't that great? Give God a round of applause for giving you that and giving me that. but look, there's a warning, and and these are pretty simple. Verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. A wolf, vicious animal, vicious, 160 pounds, uh, goes after a prey 45, uh, a span of about 45 miles just, just to hunt one prey. A German shepherd has 75, 750 pounds per square inch of pressure per bite. A wolf is 1,500, double that. So these wolves are dangerous, and they're the false prophets. There's the one, they're the ones that are teaching the wrong stuff, and they may be insincere. Here it says they're, they're ravenous wolves, and it means they're, they're charlatans. They're in it for the money. But there are some people maybe not in it for the money. They're in it for fame, Uh, They're they're in for notoriety. Maybe the philosophers of this world are there because they want to be considered intellectual. They want, you know, that that admiration. Not all of them are after money, but they all are preaching something contrary to the Word of God. He said they're in sheep's clothing. They look like somebody good. He says, but you're going to recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. What's their fruit? Their character, the content of their message. The Bible talks about philosophy, and philosophy is really um, Looking at life apart from God. God's kind of the, out of the equation. Colossians 2, 8 tells us to beware. They're full of deceit. That somebody doesn't captor, capture you through um, philosophy, vain philosophy. We do change according to the uh, interpretation of the world. And it mainly comes through philosophers. I can trace back exactly what we're believing today in America... All the way back to the 17th century. With Rousseau and all the way through the philosophers. What kind of fruit in their life? Well, Rousseau (coughs) had seven children. He left them all in a place called the asylum. We would call it, uh, I guess, an orphanage today, even though it wasn't really an orphanage. But more than that, what has he produced? What has other philosophers produced in our world? the John Dewey's of of our society. It's bad stuff. It's bad living. It's apart from the truth of God. And therefore, anytime we operate by bad truth or untruth, we're at a great disadvantage of life. He says, beware of these. Then he goes on to say in verse 21, Not everyone says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of God, or my Father, who is in heaven. Now keep in mind, he's talking again. He's making transitions, but he's making a transition and talking to the Jewish man, but the Jewish man's still in the audience. And he's thinking to himself, I'm almost persuaded I need a Savior. I'm almost persuaded, but I've said, Lord, Lord, so many times. I've prayed so many times. He says, don't think that just because you pray, just because you say you've surrendered to God, just because you say you're a believer and a follower of God, that you are only those who do, do the will of God. And he's sitting there thinking, I don't do the will of God. I can't do the will of God by myself. And that's the point. He needs a Savior. Then he says, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? We cast out demons in your name. Mighty works in your names.' And then I will declare to you, I never, and then will I declare to them, I never knew you. That is in a spiritual way. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Pretty tough stuff. Jesus spoke to some tough stuff. We think about, boy, if we just study the life of Jesus, go through this, uh, the, the, um, the Gospels, it's just going to be all encouraging, you know. Jesus was love and all encouraging. He was challenging. He wasn't trying to comfort those who were in, uh, outside of his will. He was trying to challenge them to get into his will. Then he closes out with, a, with an illustration. And here we find the results of the choices that we make. We come to the place of making a choice in life. And maybe you're here this morning and you've never received Christ into your heart at the end of this message. I'm going to give you a chance, an opportunity to do that. But here Jesus was doing the same thing. He's going to say, come and follow me. But here's what he says, verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. Now notice, he says, if you do these things, you're going to be a wise person. He said, I thought you said you couldn't do those things. That's exactly what I'm saying. You can't live the Sermon on the Mount apart from Christ. But it doesn't mean that that's not our yearning, that are, that's not our goal, that's not our, the rules to live by. You see, grace does not change the way God feels about sin. It only changes the way he deals with it. And he's saying to them, look, unless you surrender to on the rock. And who's the rock? Well, it's Jesus. Isaiah 28 says, and the Jewish man would understand this. Therefore, thus says the Lord Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a pure, sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Christ is that foundation. And the foundation of the word of God in our life. Well, the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon the house and it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and the beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. I want you to notice three things as we close. Number one, you must choose. Choose life. How do you do that? You choose your foundation. All of us choose our foundation in life. And there are two presented here. There's only two. One is the rock. Now, the foundation to this building, for example, the foundation to your home is the most important thing about your home. Without it, your house just is no good. You might as well not even build it. And so you have this foundation That's deep for this building because it's so large and tall. So you have to have a deeper foundation. All of the building is built upon the foundation. And notice there's a rock. But there's a second foundation here. And that's the sand. Sand is no foundation at all. It's really almost to a point of taking no thought. Of building anything for a foundation. The sand is always shifting. There's no stability to this house at all. And now the houses may look exactly alike. Same dimensions, same beauty, same in, inside, good, good inside, good outside, everything, but there's no foundation under the second one. They've just simply built it upon the world, their culture, and their thoughts, and how they think things ought to be built. But there's no rock. There's no foundation. The storms come, and they always come. Always. You may be sitting here this morning on the verge, or you're just coming from a uh, a real soul storm. You know, there's a young person that feels like, yeah, you know, I'm real popular in middle school, gets to high school. Boy, things changed. The school just got bigger. He's popular in high school, but he goes to college, not so much so. Kind of unknown. world kind of crumbles. Somebody graduates a valedictorian from high school, goes to Yale or Duke, and find out they're kind of average. Something happens in your life that financially you're successful. In fact, you identify yourself as a successful person. Boom, failure failure hits. A soul storm. And suddenly your world begins to fall apart. The storms always come, whatever foundation you have. But notice the one on the rock withstood. The one on the sand completely went away you must choose your foundation. Secondly, you must build your house on the foundation. And the reason I bring that out is this. You may be a Christian today. You may receive Christ into your life and heart, and most of your life is built upon that foundation of Christ. But you've built rooms on the sand. They're connected to the building. And it all looks good. The storms are going to come, and those rooms that are not founded upon the rock of Jesus Christ will crumble. So you must build a house on the foundation. Thirdly, you must live in the house that you build. That's where you live. You live in the house that you build. Stories told of a young man who worked for his dad, and they had their own little construction company building homes, and um, time for a son to get married, time for a son to kind of take a graduation step in the building business. And so his dad said, look, we've got this house that's going up. It's a real nice house, and I want you to build. I want you to be the superintendent, and I want you to build the house. He says, great. And he says, and then, you know, we can use, you know, the, you know, the profits and all that, and you can, you can take those. and It'll be good. And he says, now, look, you know, son, you know that we build with a sense of excellence. Yes, dad, I, I know that everything's got to be right. Yes, I, I know that. Okay, go for it. So months later, he, start, he as he's building the house, he begins to cut corners. He thought, you know, if I cut this corner right here and, and don't do as much here, I'll save a lot of money and there, therefore be profits in my pocket for my honeymoon. And he gets to another thing. He says, you know, I can cut corners in there the foundation doesn't have to go quite as deep and that way I can save money and I can maybe make a down payment on my own house. And he goes on and on and on and he builds this great looking house, but many corners were taken. He goes to his dad and he says, dad, I finished the house. He says, great, great. He said, you, you, it's all done? He said, yes, sir. He said, you build it with a sense of excellence that we always build with? He said, uh, yes, sir. He says, excellent, Great. And he pulls out the keys out of his desk drawer, hands them to his son, and he says, the house is yours. It's a wedding present from your mother and I. You always live in the life that you build. So we have choices in life, don't we? We just have choices. That day with Mr. Eby, I had a choice to make, as I've had to make many choices in life, as you have made many choices in life as well. A.W. Tozer wrote a book called The Pursuit of God. And in this book, in one, about the third chapter, he talks about Abraham and his choice of having and challenge to sacrifice his own son on the altar, which God didn't make him do, by the way. But nevertheless, that was a choice he had to make, whether he was going to obey God or not obey God. Just two choices. Tozer said this, So we will be brought one by one to the testing place. And we may never know when we are there. At that testing place, there will be no dozen possible choices for us, just one and an alternative. But our whole future will be conditioned by the choice we make. I want to challenge you today. Choose wisely. Choose life. With the heads bowed and eyes closed this morning, Maybe you haven't made the most important decision of your life, and that is to choose that foundation of Jesus Christ. This morning, I've shared with you what Jesus shared with the people in the Sermon on the Mount, and that's simply saying that he would be that way to heaven for you. Now, most of us struggle because it's not that we want a dozen ways or a hundred ways. We just want one more way, one more, my way, my way to heaven what I think is right. This is all about surrender. This is about humbling yourself at the foot of the cross and saying to Jesus, Lord, I'm getting out of the saving business. I cannot save myself. So I'm asking you as I humble myself before you to come into my life, to come into my life and place me on that solid foundation, that rock of Jesus Christ in my life. If that's your prayer, I want to ask you to pray this prayer with me silently as I pray aloud. Lord God, thank you for dying for me on the cross, for sending your son. Even though you loved him, you loved me so much that you sent him to die for me. I confess my sins to you. I ask you to wash them away. Because of the death of Jesus. And ask Jesus to come into my heart because he rose from the dead. I pray that you'll set my life and help me to build my life on the foundation of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.